Church, we miss you. Uh, we are running a skeleton crew here with Andy, Mike, myself, and BJ running the camera. Uh, we love you. We miss you. I'm praying for an end to the spread of this virus for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is so that we can once again together gather as God's people to worship him and to praise him. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, so if you would take out your Bibles, you're still going to need them, and turn in God's word to Psalm 33. Because that's what Psalm 33 is about. Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise. We're spending some time in the Psalms because these are strange times. Times of uncertainty, anxiety, fear, isolation, quarantine, distancing, infection, death. What do God's people do in such times? Well, one of the things that they do is they turn to the Psalms. Because the Psalms tell us what God's people have done in such times in the past. The Psalms are an inspired record of the response of God's people to God and to the various circumstances that He brings into their life. Because the Psalms, unlike many people today, understand that it is God and God alone who brings all circumstances into our lives. Does that include coronavirus? Does that include no church? Does that include death? Well, let's, let's see. Let's see if we can tackle and answer one of the big questions out there right now. A question maybe we'd sometimes rather ignore and sweep under the rug. And let's see if we can do it, not just because it will be fun and intellectually stimulating. Let's see if we can do it, because if we can, if God's Word can, then it will be eminently spiritually comforting. Everyone right now is seeking solace somewhere. How are we going to hold up? Where can we turn? Who can we trust? What would be most profitable for us to know right now in our current circumstances? I think that's an interesting question. How would you answer that question? What would be most profitable for us to know right now? What the government's going to do, how the stimulus plan is going to jumpstart the economy, um, where to find a cure for the virus. What would you say would be most profitable for us to know right now? And what would be most profitable for you to know right now? I was reading this week in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, trying to read the whole thing this year, and 200 pages into this massive and magisterial work, Calvin pins this line, nothing is more profitable than the knowledge of this doctrine. Nothing more profitable. Wow, that's quite a, that's quite a claim. What do you think it is? If you're answering at home, I cannot hear you. What doctrine would be most profitable? Calvin claims that it's providence. Calvin argues that there is nothing more profitable than the knowledge of the doctrine of God's providence. I'm going to argue this morning that there is nothing more profitable for you in these crazy and chaotic circumstances than the knowledge of God's providence. Calvin goes on, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of providence. Nothing more profitable, the highest blessedness, knowing providence. We're not exactly sure what that is. Good, because Psalm 33 is a psalm of providence. And note that I've already said Psalm 33 is a psalm of 
praise. So putting those two together, we could say that Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise for providence. And since we find ourselves conveniently in the midst of another P for our situation, we could say Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise for providence in pandemic. Praise for providence in pandemic. I was actually reading a book last night, and it was about how Martin Lloyd-Jones hates alliteration, but it was too late. Um, You're stuck with my alliteration. Um, Praise for providence in pandemic. This is a long psalm. Uh, I won't have time to make this as expositional as I would normally like. We're going to have to skip over some things to focus on a few key big ideas. You're going to notice that Psalm uh, 33 contains 22 verses. The Hebrew alphabet contains 22 letters. So there are a number of psalms that each start with a next letter of the alphabet. This one doesn't do that but it's not accidental that this psalm has 22 lines. So, so look at it briefly. Let's go look at an overview of it. There's a basic call at the beginning in verses 1 through 3. And that call is praise God. Then there is a basic response in the last three verses at the end in verses 20 through 22. It's wait, rejoice, hope, trust in the Lord. And there are different ways that people try to break up and outline the psalm. You're stuck with my attempt. So we have three and three on the outside. That's six. That leaves us with 16 verses on the inside. Praise God. Trust God. Why? Verses four through 19 in the middle. And it has two parts. Verses four through 11. That's eight verses. Praise God because God creates and controls And then verses 12 through 19, eight verses, uh, trust God because he sees and he saves. Again, we don't get it. We can't get into all the detail I would like, but I believe that it would be very profitable for you to know and understand God's providence right now. So here's the whole sermon. If you want to take notes at home, I just have two points. We're talking about praise for providence and in pandemic. Point one, we're going to see that you can praise God for his powerful providence. And then we're going to look at how you can trust God because of his compassionate providence. So praise for powerful providence. That's point one. Trust because of compassionate providence. That's point two. My goal for you this morning is simply to be comforted with and profited by an understanding of God's providence from God's word, even in the worst of times. And I want to argue that you need a robust understanding of God's providence, especially in the worst of times. How can you praise God in the middle of pandemic? By trusting, rejoicing, and hoping in his providence. We've got a lot to do. Uh, Let's read the text first. Psalm 33. I'll read it for you. I hope you will follow along at home. This is the most important part. So pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Shout for joy in the Lord. O you righteous praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. 
He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Uh, Let me pray uh, before we begin. Heavenly Father, help me now. Help me in the preaching of your word. Father, I so I want my words to be a comfort and an encouragement to your people. Father, I pray that the power of my words would come from your word. I pray that, pray that my words would correspond to your word and would exposit and explain and bring out the meaning of your word. Father, the power is there. Uh, the power is in your Holy Spirit. Father, we are separated this morning. We are glad that we get to hear from your word. We are glad for technology. But Father, we are sad that we are not together. Uh, Father, we are sad uh, that those are, for those who are sick among us, we are sad for what is going on in our, our city, our nation, and our, our world. Father, we need comfort and encouragement, knowledge, wisdom. Father, all these things are found in you and in your word. So, Father, help me now as a minister of your word to communicate these things to your people. Father, only you can accomplish this. So we ask for your help, and we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so our first point is that Christians are to praise God for his powerful providence. We're going to focus on providence, but we need to get there first. Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise. I chose Psalm 33 in part because I thought it would be helpful to consider praise in the midst of all the panic and pandemic. Look at the first verse. Notice that this is an imperative. Christian, this is what you are commanded to do. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. And then we see praise and give thanks, make melody, sing, play, shout. In summary, praise the Lord and do it joyfully. Did you know that there's not a single passage in scripture that exhorts us to be sad in the Lord? Of course there's not. But how many times are there and passages are there that encourage us and command us even to be glad in the Lord? 
We will, of course, be sad sometimes. Sin is the cause of all sadness. Ultimately, there is bound to be much sadness in a broken, sin-cursed world. So we're not minimizing the fact that there are very bad doings that are cause for very sad feelings. Sometimes we are quite sad. Sometimes we are right to be quite sad. Because the world is broken, and people are sinners, and we are sinners. And sin makes us sad. But... Hey, we're pretty good at the sad thing right now. Uh, sad comes more naturally than glad to me, which is part of the reason that I preached through Philippians last year. The epistle of joy, which commands joy. Remember 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And which is also then part of the reason that I'm preaching through Psalm 33 today. A psalm of joy that begins by commanding joy. Shout for joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. You think about it. Are, are those commands circumstantial? It was fairly easy to look at the command to rejoice in the Lord always back in the fall when everything was, for the most part, fine and most of us were doing pretty well. well what if that's what we were looking at now? Does now change anything? Does coronavirus change anything? Or does the command still Stand, regardless of circumstances. Can we shout for joy even today? Is it possible for you to find joy in the Lord even in the midst of isolation, quarantine, sickness, fear, anxiety, or death? What about you? Are you able to rejoice in the Lord today? Or does even asking the question seem kind of crazy? What? Rejoice, praise, I'm stuck in my tiny New York apartment with my kids, I have to work, I have to educate them, I can't go out, I'm terrified of the virus, the news says the world is falling apart, I'm low on funds. Shout for joy, right? That's what we're trying to figure out here this morning. But first, I want you to notice who the command is directed to. Who is commanded to rejoice? And thus, who are the only ones capable of actually Rejoicing. He specifies. He says, do this, you righteous. Second line, praise befits the upright. You may think I'm crazy for preaching Psalm 33, but you should feel blessed. I was considering doing Psalm 14, which is what Paul picks up and quotes in Romans 3 to say that none is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does good. I spared you that sermon. But Paul says very clearly, using that psalm, that none is righteous. But Psalm 33.1 gives the command of praise to the righteous. Well, what, what gives? Well, this is important. So actually look back at the previous psalm. Look at Psalm 32 for a moment. If you compare Psalm 32 and Psalm 33, you should notice a difference. 32 has a heading... 33 doesn't. If you're looking at the ESV or most translators, I'm not talking about the black bold headings. Those have been added by translators to help us. Uh, notice that Psalm 32 says a mascal of David. What's a mascal? Good question. I'm not entirely sure. Most of the Psalms before that one have the heading a psalm of David. This is the first one that says a mascal. Of David. We're not entirely sure what that means. Some think, based upon the Hebrew meaning of the word, that it, it indicates 
a specifically instructional psalm. Some argue that it's just some sort of musical term. I'm not entirely sure. But the point is that 32 has a heading, 33 does not have a heading. And besides Psalm 1 and 2, which are the introductory psalms to the whole book, every psalm in the first book of psalms has a heading, except this one and Psalm 10. And since we know that Psalm 10 uh, and Psalm 9 go together, what this most likely means is that Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 go together. So that even though there's no heading or no author, I am assuming, I think this is still David. What Psalm 33 is doing is directly connected to what he's already done in Psalm 32. So we're trying to figure out the righteous in verse 1 of 33. Well, look at verses 1 and 2 of 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the righteous. That's what it means to be righteous. We looked at this in great detail in Philippians 3. Go read the book of Romans this week. You've got time now. What if you used that time to read Romans over and over and over again? What if you used it to memorize Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the most comforting and encouraging chapters in all of Scripture. But Romans is about righteousness. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the faith. It is the fact that no one is righteous. Contrary to what every other religion and philosophy is telling and teaching, they are all basically saying the same thing. Here is what it means and what must be done for you to be a good person, for you to be right and righteous. It is only Christianity that is saying, no, 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 you cannot be righteous. Because of sin. Right? Listen, if we could just hold in our heads the reality of sin right now, a lot of things w- would fall into place. We would better understand the providence that we're about to look at. We would better understand uh, suffering. We would better understand the problem of evil. We would better understand coronavirus. We would better understand why the world is so messed up and why we are so messed up. The biblical answer and the only answer that makes sense is sin. And sin separates us from the God who is perfectly righteous. Listen, that, that's your problem. That's the main problem the Bible is concerned with and that you should be concerned with, your sin sickness. But the cure is the most remarkable thing. It's not try harder. It's not be a better person. It's not let your good outweigh your bad or do this ritual, say this prayer, follow this path or these pillars. It's grace. It's Christ. The gospel is that though you are not, nor can you be righteous, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, came down, became man, stood in our place, took on our sin and gave to us, gifted to us, graced us, with his own righteousness. This is what is called the the great exchange. Christ takes our sin, he pays the penalty for that sin, and he gives to us, he credits to us his righteousness. That's how we can be righteous. And that's the only way that we can be righteous. It is by grace through 
faith. God, the perfectly righteous one who you have to be righteous to be in relationship with, he graciously counts and considers those who trust in his son to be righteous and to be right with him. And if you somehow stumbled onto the stream online, uh, you're not part of our church or some of this is strange to you, then listen, this is the most important thing that you need to know. Everybody is thinking about death right now. Good. Let's, let's run with that. Consider that you will die. It's either coronavirus sooner or something else later. What happens then? Are you ready for that? Are you right with God? Christ is the only way that anyone can be. We cannot make ourselves right with God. But the good news of the gospel is that God has done what was required for us to make us right with God. And it's through Christ. And so the Bible tells us how to respond and what to do. And it says, repent and believe. Turn from that death-deserving sin and trust in Him, the One who is so kind and compassionate that He came and He died. He entered into our mess He entered into the problem that we created. He entered into our sickness and our suffering, and he died in our place so that we could be healed and so that we could live. That's the only way that anyone could be considered righteous. And it is the righteous who praise God. And it is right there that begins to answer our question, how and why the righteous can praise even in the midst of such crazy circumstances. It's because of this grace. It's because their transgression is forgiven, their sin is covered, and God counts no iniquity against them. I praise God for that. So that's the best news in the world. If you came to me today and said, hey Matt, good news, bad news, uh, good news, you were just given a hundred million dollars. Wow, right? That's that's pretty good news. Sorry, brother, there's, there's bad news. Oh no, what's the bad news? Your car has been totaled. You mean my 12-year-old minivan that's worth about $1,000? I'm all right. <laughs> Thanks. A $1,000 loss does not register on the scale of a $100 million gain. That's what we have in the gospel. That's what we have in our, our forgiveness and our iniquity not being counted against us and us being restored to Christ. That's the $100 million prize. Uh, physical sickness, suffering, coronavirus, death, even. Man, that's the $1,000 loss that does not register on this scale. There is nothing better than this news. Right? This is the answer to your guilt. He counts no iniquity against us. Guys, I've got... All kinds of iniquity. I'm a sinner and a great one at that. There is no question. And yet, God counts none of that sin against me. Because he's already counted it against Christ. We could stop right there. Shout for joy. Praise God. Give thanks for that, regardless of your circumstances. Brothers and sisters, that right there is reason enough for you to rejoice no matter what happens. But Ian, that's not the focus of the text. Praise God. Let's get back to the text. How? Look at verses 4 through 11. First, praise God because of who he is. Verse 4 says he is upright 
and faithful. His word, that's just a reflection of, of who he is. He is upright and faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. And that is still true today. He's good. His word is good. And notice how verse 4 parallels God's word in line 1 with his work in line 2. They go together. He works through his word. Best example? Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Creation by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's the focus of verses 6 through 9. God, this God that we're called to praise, has created everything. He is the author and originator of everything. He speaks it all. Verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Or he decreed. He decrees it all. All right, so here's, here's where I need you with me. Focus, uh, thinking caps on, uh, theology time. Theology, hopefully, for comfort in these times. Uh, statement, our statement, the statement of faith, the 1689 that I've been teaching on and that, that I love and ascribe to. Um, all the Reformed statements of faith talk a lot about God's decrees. It's the third chapter after Scripture and then God in the Westminster Confession and then in our Second London Baptist Confession. So that sounds pretty important. It comes third. And the first line of the chapter says this, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. God declares. God decrees everything that comes to pass. That, that is what we mean when we talk about God's absolute sovereignty. Everything that happens, happens because he planned it to happen. There is no happenstance, only God's decree. This is just what scripture says. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He decrees it. I've mentioned before to you the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's wonderful. Question 7 says this. Well, what are the decrees of God? The answer, the decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will by which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that happens. Right, so God decrees, plans, ordains everything that happens. That's God's sovereignty, his authority, his decree. But how does God then execute that plan? How does he carry out that plan? Well, next question of the shorter catechism, question eight. How does God carry out his decree? God carries out his decree in creation and providence. Creation, verses four through nine of Psalm 33, and providence, verses 10 and 11. God decrees his plan, his counsel, and then he executes it. He carries it out. He creates everything, but he doesn't then sit back and stop there. After creation, he continues his active work and involvement in that creation in his providence. What is providence? Question 11 of the Catechism. What is God's providence? God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of every creature and every action. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 33. Notice the contrast there between man and God. The Lord brings the counsel 
of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of his people, counsel and plans. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. That's God's providence. We talked about this some in Philippians, but I think it's important. Remember, the word comes from Latin. Pro means before, and videre means to see. Right? So the word literally means for seeing. But since we're talking about the God of all sovereignty and power, his foreseeing is also then for doing. Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the 1689. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. So God's providence is simply his upholding and sustaining of all things. It is his specific directing and guiding and governing of all things. So in the biblical worldview, there is no such thing as chance or luck or fate. There is God, and he is sovereign, and he decides and decrees everything that is to happen, and then he perfectly carries out those decrees through his providence. So God's sovereignty works itself out in his providence, which means that circumstances, all circumstances, ultimately come from God. Verse 10, it is all his counsel and his plan. And here's the thing that we don't want to talk about. Listen, that that includes coronavirus. That includes whatever hard and difficult circumstance may come into your life. Or if you want to be more accurate, we'd say whatever hard and difficult circumstances that God orders or ordains or brings into your life, he does it. If it happens, then he decreed it to happen. And that includes the bad things. We're talking about that this morning. Some people would say we shouldn't be talking about that. But maybe we should try and hide uh, that this is what the Bible teaches. No, we're talking about this because it's biblical and important, but we've lost it. Providence today is little more than, than Christian luck. Right? We affirm and assert it for good things. Right? We narrowly miss uh, getting T-boned at the intersection here of Queens Boulevard, which is the worst intersection in the world. And the car just missed us. We're like, phew, that was providential. It was. We get coronavirus. No one says that was providential. But it was. Because everything is providential. This is just what scripture teaches. And we looked at this in great detail in Job. What a timely study that was. Maybe we should start it again. Remember, Satan assaults Job. The Sabaeans kill his servants and take his oxen and donkeys. The Chaldeans kill his servants and take his camels. And Job cries out, the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he again says in the next chapter, after things get even worse, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? You see, Job understood the providential hand of God behind all things. Yet that includes everything happening right now. What do you think of that? 
I mean, honestly, you need to evaluate how your heart responds to that. Because this requires a big shift for all of us at some point in time. But it's just what Scripture teaches repeatedly from beginning to end. This is just what it means for God to be God. He created everything. It's therefore His. Therefore, He has the power and the right to direct everything. And we could spend hours working through this and defending this by, by walking through the countless passages of Scripture that affirm it. Uh, we, just, we don't have time. Let me give you just one, a wonderful one. Go spend some time medica- meditating this week on Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, where God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel, there's that word again, shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Memorize that. He is God. You are not. He is not like us. He is the sovereign king whose will will be done. He decrees everything that is to happen. And he carries it out through his guiding and sustaining active providence. We should praise him for that. We should praise him for his powerful providence. Let's let God be God. Let's repent for all of our attempts to qualify him and make him into our own image. Let's let him be big and mighty and mysterious. Let's be okay with not understanding everything about him. Let's be humble enough to admit that maybe, just maybe, the God of the universe understands some things that we don't. I want to warn you and encourage you this morning that a small God will be no help to you in hard times. A small God, a God that is beholding to you, a God that is sitting back and waiting for you to act, a God that would never violate your free will, whatever that means. Uh, Such a God is not and cannot be in control. And that's the worst news at a time like this. It's pretty simple. God is either in control, that's his sovereign providence, or he's not. And thus things are out of control. Either God is actively working all things together for good, or he is sitting back passively or powerlessly watching, either unwilling or unable to do anything about it. Brothers and sisters, you will find no comfort and no safety in that God in these hard times. We praise God because of his powerful providence. He's big enough for this. We've sung it since we were babies, but most of us don't really believe it, especially when things get difficult. But he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, does he? Not according to the theology of many. Not according to our fear and panic when things start to go a little wrong. Brothers and sisters, what you need, what Calvin says would be most profitable for you to know right now, is God's powerful providence. Praise him. For that. But also, that's not all. And it's good that that's not all, because if we left it there, we could have all kinds of questions and problems. We've all seen power abused. We hear about powerful providence. Our world hates power and doesn't understand the goodness of power today. Uh, we see, we hear about God's power. We see the coronavirus, and we struggle to reconcile those things. Okay, he's powerful. It's all over Scripture. Fine. But is he good? Point number two. 
Trust also God because of his compassionate providence. Look over at verses 12 through 19. 12 through 19. Notice the thread running through these verses. Uh, Verse 13, the Lord looks, then he sees. Verse 14, he looks out. Verse 15, he observes all. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord. God sees. And notice how comprehensive this is. 13, all. 14, all. 15, all. And, And if you still have questions or doubts about the idea of his sovereignty and providence, look again at verse 15. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So he doesn't just see all. He sees all our hearts. And he doesn't just see all of our hearts, but he himself fashions all of our hearts. It makes me think of Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That is more than just seeing as observing. That is seeing as shaping. That is seeing as caring. God never just observes. He acts. He sees. He knows. My favorite Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. But he knows. But it is a caring and kind knowledge. The previous verse, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Look at verse 18, back in Psalm 33. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Right, so he sees, his, his eye is on us. But why? For what purpose? Verse 19, that purpose statement, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Let's get back up to verse 12. Blessed, that's the theme of the Psalms. The very first word of the whole book, Psalm 1-1, is blessed. This is a book about blessing, and here we see it again. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So no, that's, that's not about America. That's not about Israel. That's not about any political nation, I mean, Israel today. No, that's about God's nation, God's people, his church. The people of God are blessed of God, blessed with God. And this is the ultimate purpose of his providence, the blessing of his people. There is no blind fate. This is not arbitrary or capricious providence. This is a guided, benevolent, and compassionate providence. Yes, God directs and orders and guides all things. He decrees, ordains, and uses all things. But this is the end to which he always does that. The blessing and salvation of his people. He sees, but he sees to save. You can trust him because his providence is a compassionate providence. He is kind and he is good. You'll see that affirmed over in the very next psalm. Just look over there to Psalm 34. For a second, you see it in verse 8 of Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That brings together so many of the threads of what we've been looking at for the last week. There's the refuge found only in him, there's the blessing that's found only in him, and there's his goodness. Have you tasted and seen his goodness? Skip down to verse 15 of Psalm 34. Here's the eye again the eyes of the Lord 
are toward the righteous, and his ear is toward their cry. Look at 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. It's just so good. Keep going. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Remember, that was last week. God's people suffer, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God's people suffer, but God saves and sustains. We have to affirm his absolute power, his absolute sovereignty, his powerful providence, but we also have to affirm his absolute goodness, that he works all things for the end of the blessing and salvation of his people. What about coronavirus? What about all the suffering? What about all the death? Listen to Psalm 145, 17. See if you believe this. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Do you believe that? How can we affirm that when we're talking about God's providence in the midst of pandemic? Brothers and sisters, of course, listen, there's, there's some mystery here. We know God is perfectly good. God is incapable of himself doing evil. We could talk about first causes and second causes and how all that works, but this is not the time and we do not have the time right now. We'll just have to leave it at the fact that God does decree and ordain and direct all things, including evil, but he does so in a way that he is completely innocent of that evil. The evil always originates in us. There is suffering, but it is because of sin. There is coronavirus, but it is ultimately because of sin. I'm not saying people that get it are specifically getting it because of sin. I'm saying ultimately all the fallenness, all the brokenness in this world, including this virus, is a result of sin. Evil always originates in us. There's death because of the evil and the sin that originated in us. It's ultimately the result of that. We do it, and we often do it happily. We are responsible for the evil that we do, and thus we desperately need a providential God that can bring good out of that evil. So while the instruments used by God may at times be sinful and wicked, it is certain that God's designs are righteous, and all his workings are kind in their purpose and end. Though God permits and limits and orders and overrules many unholy and evil persons and actions, he is untainted by all of it. He may decree it, but we are the ones who do it. So this may stretch and strain us to the limit of our understanding, but we cannot question that Scripture affirms it to be true. This is simply Genesis 50. I think this is where it's laid out most simply and most clearly. You know the story, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. He tells them at the end of the story, um, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's God's compassionate providence working through man's wicked evil. Remember, it's the same action. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and then lied to their father about it. Is there anything more wicked than kidnapping and selling a person created in the image of God as a possession, as a slave? That's what they did. They did evil, but God meant it the same 
thing, let's be clear on this, the selling of their little brother as a possession into slavery, that wickedly evil thing God meant, which means God sovereignly ordained and ordered and planned and counseled, however you want to put it, his hand was in and behind that exact same thing, selling Joseph into slavery. It was not outside of God's will. It was directly part of God's will. He planned it. It came from his hand and he did it. And that's why Joseph can say in 45.7 that it was God who sent him to Egypt when it was also the evil action of his brothers. That's providence. God can and does both ordain, work through, and overrule the evil, sinful things that men do. They are guilty for those things. They do wicked things for wicked ends. But God, who is perfectly holy and who we just read is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, uses all those same things to bring about that righteousness and that kindness. How does he do it? I don't know. (laughs) But I trust that he's God and I'm not. I trust that there are some things about the infinite, eternal God who created this amazingly complex and beautiful reality that I do not fully comprehend. If we want to have a Zoom meeting this week and tackle the complexity of all this later, hey, let's, let's do it. But all I want you to get right now is that rightly understood, this doctrine of God's meticulous providence is of the utmost of comfort to God's people in times like these. Why is this the most profitable thing for you to know? Listen to another wonderful catechism. This is the Heidelberg. Here's how it defines providence. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his own hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that leaf and blade and rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see that? 500 years ago, surrounded by much more sickness and suffering than we are, they understood that even it, even sickness, comes by God's fatherly hand. How in the world is that comforting? Well, the Heidelberg anticipates your question. The next question, how does the knowledge of God's providence help us? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. You see, this virus cannot so much as move without God's will. Listen, if it does, and if it comes, and if it comes to me or if it comes to one of us, it comes only from the hand of our good Heavenly Father, who has promised that he is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. That all things includes viruses and death. One more old Reformed confession. I'm sorry, I've had too much time to read this week and I've been reading lots of old things. Uh, listen to the Belgic Confession, Article 13. I, I love this. This is its explanation of providence. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious, heavenly, 
Father, who watches over us with his fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that God holds in check the devils and all of our enemies who cannot touch us or hurt us without divine permission and will. You see, the providence of God gives us unspeakable comfort because it reminds us that he cares and that he is in control of everything that happens and that he is bringing it all together for your good. And think about that. If God performs all things for you and your good, working them all, taking them all together for your good, then how kind and caring and attentive is he? What a promise that is. Our problem is that we don't quite agree with him as to what our ultimate good is. We've bought into the lies of materialism and the lies of our culture. We still think our ultimate good is primarily our health and our wealth and our happiness here. God doesn't necessarily agree. He is doing something bigger. He is doing something longer. Don't forget the hundred million dollar versus the one thousand dollar car illustration. The thing that God is doing and working toward is of infinite and inestimable worth. He is making you like him. He is preparing you to be with him. And even if the worst comes, death in Christ, all that does is usher us into the presence of of the one we most claim to love and long for. Remember Philippians 1. This is what Paul would choose. He says to live as Christ and to die as gain, and his desire was to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that today? If we do, if we did, there just wouldn't be fear. Listen, God is wiser than you. Surely, none of us would dispute that, though we often live and act like we would. But if God is wiser than you, that also then means that providence is wiser than you. And you may confidently rest in the fact that things are being arranged better for your eternal good than you could arrange them had it all been left up to you. Do you trust him? I'm already long, so I'm just going to go a little bit uh, longer. Uh, let me read this. I wasn't going to read this. Let me read this real quick. Um, Flavel, Mystery of Providence, Keeping the Heart. Uh, great books. I've read this quote before, but I think it's particularly uh, helpful in this time. Let me see if you actually believe this. Listen to this about God's providence. This is almost 400 years ago. Here's what he writes. He says, If you could but see how God in his secret counsel has exactly laid the whole plan of your salvation, even to the smallest means and circumstances. Could you but discern the admirable harmony of divine dispensations, their mutual relations together with the general respect they all have to the last and final end? Had you the freedom to make your own choice, if you could see and understand all of that, he says, had you the freedom to make your own choice, you would, of all conditions in the world, choose that in which you now are in. Providence is like a curious piece of tapestry made of a thousand shreds, which single appear useless, but put together. 
They represent a beautiful history to the eye. God does, as God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. Of course, this is ordained as the best method to affect your salvation and your good. Do you actually, I don't think you, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe this right now. Do you actually believe that you can see everything that God is doing and understand it from his perspective that of all things, if you could choose your situation right now, you would choose the exact conditions in which you find yourself at this very moment. That has to be true if he is perfectly sovereign and he is perfectly good because he has promised that he is working all those things to your ultimate good. And that includes quarantine and that includes being stuck with your kids. That includes everything that's going on right now. Now, I used the illustration back in the fall of Bob Ross, the painter. I loved watching him paint, and he'd throw some strip or mark or dark spot or black thing or cut across the page, and you'd look at it and say, what are you doing, Bob Ross? That looks awful. It's dark, and it's rugged, and it's, 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 it's bad. I can't understand. And then 30 minutes later, he puts a couple final strokes, and it all comes together, and you step back, and you're like, oh, that's what you were doing. That's how that works into that. At some point in time, maybe it'll be eternity, but we're going to be able to step back and look and say, oh, look at how the master artist has worked and constructed and brought all of these things together for his ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. That's what he's always doing. And that's what he's also then doing right now with all of this stuff that's going on. That's why it is so profitable for you to know the doctrine of providence. Things are not out of control. God is still on his throne. He is accomplishing and doing exactly what he wants. And he has said it is going to be for your good. We may not always understand or know why. I can tell you that God is sovereign over the coronavirus and his hand of providence is guiding and directing it. I cannot tell you all of the reasons why, uh, but I can tell you what he is always doing is verses 18 and 19. In Christ, his eye is on you that he may deliver you and bless you. He may not deliver you from physical death. Listen, in fact, until Christ returns, he will not deliver any of us from physical death. But he has already delivered us from an infinitely worse spiritual death. And so Jesus says beautifully in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so even when I don't understand I can choose to trust this God, the God of powerful providence, but also the God of compassionate providence, watching, caring, blessing, and ultimately delivering his people to him forever. The fairy tales are true. In Christ, they all did live happily ever after. Calvin, once more, the fact that afflictions always have a happy end is a consolation that much mitigates their bitterness. If God is sovereign, everything that happens to us is of significance. If we can but see it, we must learn to see that everything is spiritual. Everything is from God. Everything is purposeful and useful and necessary. And thus, ultimately, for those who are in Christ, everything ultimately ends in good. And knowing that he is behind it, in control, and working it for good is the most profitable thing that you can know in times like these.
So I've already been long, uh, so I got to stop. But so in conclusion, spend the rest of your Lord's Day and the rest of your time doing verses 20 through 22. Wait for him. He's your help and your shield. Be glad in him. Even though everything else seems bad, seems sad, remember all of these things that are true and that can make you glad. Trust in his holy name. Because if you are in Christ, his steadfast love, that's his hesed, that's his unbreakable, faithful, covenant-keeping love, that is on you. And it will never be off of you. So hope, brothers and sisters, in him. Trust, brothers and sisters, in him. Praise God for his powerful and compassionate providence, even in the midst of pandemic. Let me close our time with a word of prayer. Father, I am thankful for your word. Father, I am humbled that I have the privilege of preaching and proclaiming that word. Father, I recognize that apart from you, I can do nothing. I recognize that apart from you, I will have accomplished nothing in this long time. Father, please help the hearing of your word. I ask now that you would take your word and use it to encourage and edify my brothers' and sisters' hearts. Father, I miss my family. I miss my church family. I'm sad uh, that we are separated. But Father, I'm glad that you are sovereign. You are providentially working even in this, this fact that we cannot be together right now. You are doing something with that. You are going to bring good out of that. And Father, I pray that one of the goods that you bring out of that would be a renewed hunger and desire and appreciation for the gathering of your saints. Father, I pray that you would make us sad that we cannot be together. And at the same time, trusting your wisdom and providence and then building within us a great longing and desire to be back together again. Father, we know that you're working and we know that you're good. But we know also that you work through the prayers of your people and you call us to pray. And Father, and so we do, as Mike has already prayed, we ask that you would protect our people. We ask that you would protect um, our people from uh, catching this virus. We pray that you would slow the spread of this virus. We pray that you would um, protect life and bring an end uh, to this soon. Father, we pray that everything wouldn't go back to normal. We pray that you would use this to wake people up and to grab people's attention and to bring people to you. Father, we don't always know what you're doing, but we know that you're always doing good. So when we are afraid, we are tempted to anxiety, Father, help us to trust you. Father, help us to uh, help one another do that. Even as we are separated, I pray that we would care for one another and call one another and reach out to one another. Father, help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.